I titled this, just in case you're a little put off by the chapters you just studied this week. We know one thing, Jacob was a busy man. <laughs> but I've titled this, A Tale of Two Sisters. Not to be confused with Dickens. A Tale of Two Cities, but A Tale of Two Sisters. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11, it says, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. Not one of, of all of the advantages, whether it's swiftness or strength or bread, the right food, or riches, or even understanding, intellectualism gives you an advantage spiritually. That doesn't guarantee success. I, Brian, we were on a trip and I didn't bring a book and he says, I've got a book for you to read. It was Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's probably an interesting book. Brian loved it. I fell asleep a couple of times. But his whole proposition is that it really is randomness that makes greatness. But he believes that God is in the randomness, that it really is a spiritual component to why some people make it and other people don't. But it's possible to have every material advantage in life and yet have a deep barrenness that sinks down into your soul. Physical and material advantages can become deficits when you begin to lean into them, work out from them, and seek them to alleviate the sense of barrenness. I, I remember, um, I think I was about 26 or 27, looking in the mirror, seeing my first line around my eye, Actually, I went to a, a makeup counter and said, do you have something for this? And she looked at me and she said, ooh. And I looked back and said, ooh? Did you really just say ooh? And she's like, yeah. So I went to a different store, just saying. <laughs> Shoes, different stores. You guys are so with me, I feel it. But anyway, I, I remember that. <laughs> this thought that I had, like, man, it's time to start working on personality. <laughs> you know what they say, what's 1098? Some of you will get this, some of you won't. So those of you over 40, get prepared, maybe over 50, prepare to get it. Those under 50 just go, what? It's okay. What goes 10987654321? Bo Derek, aging. Yeah, ask somebody over 50 to explain it to you, and she will. Again, the physical, the material advantages become deficits when we lean into those and expect those to get us through life. Hugh Laurie, who is, an, who is a successful actor said, I don't have a single complete show, movie, or anything else that I could look and say, nailed that one. But endless dissatisfaction is, I suppose, what gets us out of bed in the morning. 
Ted Duane, I don't know who this guy is, but I liked his quote. As humans, we've such a dis we are such a discontented species. I love this. As humans, we're such a discontented species. We're always trying to further ourselves and you get all the way to the moon and then it's just discontent. You wanna go to Mars. Satisfaction and contentment do not come by way of physical advantages, material advantages, financial advantages, or emotional advantages. True satisfaction, true contentment can only come when we recognize God for who he is, what he does, and his compassion for us. In Genesis 29 and 30, we have the tale of two sisters. The youngest sister had every advantage, and yet a nine discontent that brought jealousy, rivalry, and dissatisfaction to Jacob's house. The older sister, who had every disadvantage, found contentment and even joy in the Lord. So let's go a little background, um, and we'll go to chapter 29, and I'm just going to summarize 29 and, and 30 as quickly as I can. After having an encounter with God at Bethel, Jacob picks up his feet and heads towards Mesopotamia. Before his encounter with God, he's in flight mode. After his encounter with God, he's in expectation mode. But he arrives just by the divine will of God at a field outside of Haran. And he sees shepherds there waiting to water their flocks. And he asks them, where are you from? And they said, Haran. And he says, do you know Laban? And they said, yes, we not only know Laban, but right there, that's his daughter who is coming to water the flocks. Now, it tells us in Genesis 29 that Rachel was a shepherdess. This was very, very rare in the Eastern culture. One, because a shepherdess was vulnerable because she'd be in the fields with strange men and you know anything could happen in the fields. Also, it probably means that Laban's sons, who we'll read about later in chapter 31, that they were too young still to be shepherds. It took extreme energy, stamina, and bravery to be a shepherd. And yet, Rachel is a shepherd. So this speaks very highly of Rachel. Tells us that she had energy, that she had stamina, and that she was very courageous and brave. Jacob, when he sees Rachel, is ecstatic. He tells the other shepherds, hey, water your flocks and then leave. He went some time alone with his cousin. But the shepherds insist, that's not the way we do it. But Jacob has his own skill set. He's been taking care of his father's herds and flocks. He's been managing Isaac's household. So he goes over and he rolls away the stone. He's not afraid of the other shepherds. He's showing off his strength for Rachel. And he is also showing his knowledge of shepherding and defending and protecting Rachel at the same time. Jacob kisses Rachel. He weeps and identifies himself as her cousin, Rebecca's son. Rachel is so excited. She goes running back to her father. She tells Laban, I've met Rebecca's son, Jacob. He's in the field. Laban comes running out, invites Jacob back to his home. 
Jacob stays with his uncle Laban. And after a week, Laban says, you know, you really should work for me. And I'm willing to pay you. What do you want me to pay you? And Jacob says, I'll work seven years for Rachel. In those days, a dowry would be about 30 to 40 shekels. That would be the bride price. 10 shekels was a year's wages. So he is saying, I'm willing to work double for Rachel. You know, not three years or four years. I'm willing to work seven years. That's how greatly he esteems and values Rachel. That would have been so flattering to Rachel, maybe. Or maybe she was like, oh, yeah, you should. We don't know. But that was his way of esteeming, saying she's worth seven years of labor. That was unheard of to offer that kind of price for a bride. Jacob is in love with Rachel, the younger of Laban's sisters. She is beautiful. The Bible tells us she's beautiful in face and form. She's got a great figure and she's got a beautiful face. But it also tells us that her sister Leah has delicate eyes that can also be translated weak eyes. John Corson said something which is kind of cruel. And I've never known John to be cruel, but he said this meant that it hurt to look at her. (laughs) Other connotations or interpretations are that she was fragile. I mean, she's got this sister that's got all this stamina, but she's fragile. Another interpretation is that she had bad eyesight and squinted. And finally, it conveys the idea that she was not beautiful. Laban hires Jacob for seven years. The years fly by for Jacob as he works knowing that at the end he will receive Rachel. He probably started working around 40 years of age or 41, so he is now 47 or 48. Now the wedding night has come, and Laban no doubt because it's a wedding feast those could last for seven days he plies jacob with wine and food and then sends him into a dark tent does any of this sound familiar then in that dark tent leah is dressed up like rachel so leah goes into the dark tent pretending to be her younger sister dressed like her younger sister in the darkness, just like Isaac, who had darkness because he couldn't see, and Jacob was sent into that tent pretending to be his older brother, dressed as his older brother, plying his father with wine and savory stew. So at this wedding, after all of the festivities, Jacob's in this dark tent, Leah comes in dressed like Rachel. Now, the wedding night, the um, sex on the wedding night ratified the marriage. You could have the ceremony, but it wasn't considered ratified until the, the, the wedding night and, um, and the, the sex. I can't, there's a better word, but that's it. Think, leave it to the nurse to give me the right word. What was that word again? 
Consummation. See, I've got every disadvantage right now. Thank you, friend. And I mean that, friend. So Jacob awakes in the morning only to realize he has married the wrong daughter. Laban justified his deceit by cultural protocol. In his culture, the eldest must be given in marriage first. Isn't that interesting? It's her birthright to be married first. The fact that her father wants to pawn her off by deceit is also telling. The fact that there had been no suitor for Leah in seven years is also telling. She is unwanted in her own father's household. She is unwanted by any of the men uh, who live in Haran. And it's a culture that a spinster daughter was considered a deficit. So Laban encourages Jacob to fulfill his week for Leah. Now, they would have a week. Again, this is celebration. But a week was reserved to the bride and for the groom. We would call it a honeymoon. But in those days, it was to guarantee the conception of the first child, to give the wife time to conceive. And no doubt, this is what happens with Leah. Then after seven days, Rachel is given to Jacob as a wife, and then Rachel has seven days alone with Jacob to conceive. And Jacob must work another seven years for Rachel. He works hard for Laban for 14 years. He has two wives who have plans for him. And every day when he comes in from a hard day's work, after watching the flocks of Laban and the cattle of Laban, he has a different sleeping partner. It might be Leah, might be Rachel, might be Bilhah or Zilpah. After 14 years of working for Laban, Jacob is ready to return to Canaan, but he has no wives, uh, but he has only wives and sons, no riches. He has no way to support them, but he's ready just to gather up his whole clan and go back to Isaac. Laban bargains with him to work another seven years and Laban says this, I have learned by divination that God is blessing me because of you. Divination doesn't necessarily mean by means of magic. It could mean that I've divined or I've realized spiritually that, that I've had an epiphany that the reason I'm blessed is because of you. So Jabin, Jacob negotiates with Laban. Jacob will work for livestock. Jacob agrees to take the least of Laban's flock, the speckled, the streaked, the spotted. Laban agrees to these terms, but before these terms can start, what does Laban do? He removes all the streaked, the spotted, and the speckled out from his livestock that Jacob will be taking care of. He gives it to his own sons, and he sends his sons 50 miles away so that Jacob will have to start from scratch because the idea is that streaked will give birth to streaked, striped will give birth to striped. But when you're starting again with solids, the odds go way down that there will be any streaked, spotted, or speckled. So this is, again, this is Laban being Laban, right? This is being um, deceitful. So Jacob starts from nothing. Now, not to be outdone or outwitted by his by his uncle Laban. Jacob thinks in his heart too can play at this game. You won't find that in the scriptures. You just have to have a divine revelation that he's thinking that. 
But using a combination of folklore and science, Jacob mates the strongest animals together. He peels back the branches, exposing the white. Now, this is a wordplay in the Hebrew because the word Laban actually means white or whitey. So what Jacob does is he exposes the white of the branches to, to get the, um, the goats and the sheep and the cattle to have spots and speckles and streaks. Now, did, do you think that worked? No. Some think he's actually thinking it's working, that it's producing this. Others think he's reminding God that Laban cheated him by exposing the white at the mating troughs and saying, God, you know what Laban has done to me. Get even with him. What it is, we don't know. But it's interesting that during these seven years, Jacob's wealth increases to unparalleled success. He's exceedingly prosperous with all the disadvantages. He prospers. He gets large flocks. He gets male and female servants. He gets camels. He gets donkeys. In seven years, he goes from impoverished and having nothing but children and wives to having exceeding large flocks, male servants, camels, and donkeys. That's better than Amazon stock. That's crazy. Now, meanwhile, in Jacob's house, something else altogether is going on. Rachel, who has all the natural advantages, is barren. Let's talk about Rachel's advantages. We talked about her beauty, her perfect figure, but let's talk about her personality. She's got personality. She ran and told her father she could make demands of Jake, Jacob. She's a woman with skills, useful. She's strong. She's brave, but also emotional strength. She's wanted. She's loved. She's esteemed and valued. Yet she has a nine discontent. Her natural advantages were not substitutes for the barrenness that she carried. And this barrenness that she had caused her to be so jealous of her sister's fruitfulness. She becomes jealous of the one with all the disadvantages. She becomes competitive and she becomes angry. Rachel's natural advantages moved her to seek natural means to alleviate this barrenness. She had gotten so used to leaning into her natural advantages. You know, there's nothing worse than seeing a 90-year-old try to flirt. You know, you're just like, oh, don't do that. Or, you know, no offense, but those older women that are showing off things that should have been covered... You know, when I see some of these aging stars wearing outfits that, you know, bikinis, it's like, no, 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 no. You know, put those away. You know, don't burn them even. It's, it's just not a good look. It, but they're still leaning on the past, on what they used to be. I remember there was a lady, she was in her 80s, and we, Brian was, when we were in Vista, and I was, I think, 
24, 25 at the time. And she came to church with all these pictures of her in a bikini when she was in her like 40s. And she says, I have something to show you. You think your wife is so good looking. Take a look at these. And Brian's like, maybe not. <laughs> he saw the first one and said, maybe not. I think these would be really good to show your husband. Oh, he's seen them, but I just want to show you. Your wife's got nothing compared to what I have. And he, he was like, okay. I think there was a little dementia there, obviously. <laughs> but you know, to lean into... There are people I have seen that lean into those natural advantages and get used to using natural advantages because they've always had them. It's very, very dangerous. And what we see in verses one and two of chapter 30 is that she went to Jacob. She blamed Jacob for her problems. She says, give me children or else I die. It's your fault. I'm blaming you. I've got all the natural advantages. This should not be happening to me. It's got to be your fault. But Jacob says, your problem's with God. Seek God. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? You need to go to God. Then she comes up with a plan, not unlike Sarah's, to acquire children through surrogates. This was very common in the Eastern culture, this, this, these surrogate pregnancies with the maids. I mean, we look at it and go, Whoa! and that's because we're Westerners. But in the Eastern culture, having children was so important, so important, and especially she wants her children to be in the lineage, to be under the promises of Abraham. She wants a part in that. So she gives her maid Bilhah to Jacob as a surrogate mother. But when Bilhah gives birth to two sons, Rachel names these sons Dan and Naphtali. And these names, she justifies these names. Dan means judge. But it reflects Rachel's belief that she was in the right against her sister. I've, I've, my sister, this, this is right. And both of the names have to do with her sister. She's measuring herself by her sister, not by God, but by her sister. Naphtali means, uh, she justifies it as, I have wrestled with my sister and won. Now, Rachel then hears that Reuben, Leah's son, has found mandrakes in a field, and Rachel bargains a night with Jacob for them. Now, mandrakes, I'm going to read you this. Mandragora aficinarum is a stemless perennial root in the potato family, because you want to know this. Found growing in stony ground. It resembles the human figure and has a narcotic and purgative properties which explain its medicinal use. Its shape and pungent fragrance may be the origin of its use in fertility rites and as an aphrodisiac. It has dark green wrinkled leaves. This is so you can recognize it if you see it in your yard. From which rise a violet bell-shaped flower. So we're on the lookout. Its fruit is a yellowish berry, approximately the size of a small tomato, which can be consumed, just in case you're hungry, you want something extra for your salad. 
The mandrake is native to the Mediterranean region, but not common in Mesopotamia. Now you know. Now you know. Now you can go home. You know. Rachel believes that if she has this fruit, this is the cause of the barrenness. First, Jacob's the cause. Um, then she tries the surrogates. Now if she has this aphrodisiac, this will make all the difference. This is the remedy. This is the solution for, for her barrenness. And it doesn't work. Instead, what happens? Leah gets a night with Jacob and she, she gets pregnant and she conceives three more times. Finally, after Leah has three more children, so it's seven O. Rachel, we're told that God remembered or was mindful of Rachel. Interestingly enough, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel were all described in the Bible as beautiful, and yet all three women were described as barren. God used Sarah's barrenness to bring out a covenant child, to arrest Abraham and Sarah's attention on the miraculous, on the singularity of this son, of this covenant son. God used Rebecca's barrenness to get Isaac praying and Rebecca to seek him concerning her pregnancy and the sons she would give birth to. But Rachel's barrenness did not result in any special revelation from God of a covenant son or a special work. Rachel has what we might call a user relationship with God. She pleads for God for a child. There are some people who this is what their relationship with God is like. It's God, give me what I want. God, give me what I need rather than God, give me you. When Rachel has a son, she names this son Joseph, saying, God will give me another. The name Joseph, don't get upset if you named your son Joseph or if you named your daughter Rachel. This is unpopular with people of those names, this Bible study. Joseph means I want another one or not enough, insufficient, discontent. Later, We'll read next week in Genesis 31, 34, where Rachel steals her father's idols and lies about it, jeopardizing Jacob, trying to get some inheritance from her father by stealing. Idols were not only images to other gods, idolatry, but they also represented land rights. And they were usually made of silver or gold as to have value. You see, Rachel is still seeking natural advantages. When Rachel gives birth to a second son, this will be in Genesis 35, she names him Benoni, or son of my sorrow, or the son that killed me, the son that cursed me. Such a name would be a curse on the child and a constant reminder that he had caused his mother's death. She's, because of her own self-centeredness, in her death, she's bringing a curse to her son. 
Jacob intervenes, and this is the only child he names. And he changes the name from Benoni to Benjamin, strength of my right hand. Now, Leah has all the disadvantages. She's weak-eyed, whatever that means to you. She's pawned off by her father. She is married by pretending to be someone else. She is unloved. She's unwanted. Her sister is jealous of her. And she's in an emotionally unhealthy atmosphere. Yet, the names of Leah's children reveal much about what was going on in her heart and life. The name Reuben, seen, is justified as God has seen my affliction. God knows what I'm going through. The name Reuben is hearing or God has heard my prayers. These names are reminiscent of what Hagar realized. Hagar, who had all the disadvantages. She was the bond servant. Uh, she was taken advantage of. Uh, Sarah treated her um, cruelly. But when she ran away, God spoke to her and told her she would give birth to a son, Ishmael. And she named the well where God met her, Elroy, or you are the God that sees, Genesis 16, 42. And she named her son Ishmael, or God hears. These are the very attributes that Leah acknowledges. The Lord surely looked on my affliction. The Lord has heard that I am unloved. Her third son is named attached, Levi, speaking of a hope that will not be fulfilled. Her fourth son is named Judah, or praise. At this time in her life, she stops conceiving, which could mean that Jacob is not coming into her anymore now that he's got Bilhah and Rachel. He's a little busy. Leah then offers her maid, Zilpah, to Jacob. In offering their maid, that... In the Eastern culture, this was something beneficent. Remember, Sarah did it for Abraham, that Abraham might have a covenant son. They think they're doing something that honors their husband because their goal is to give their husband as many sons as possible. We would slap our husband silly if they tried this. It's like you want to just put over this, don't try this at home or anyplace else. Zilpah, like Bilhah, these are names we should all remember, has two sons that Le Leah names Gad, or a troop comes. It means strength or blessing. Asher means blessed or happy. They have nothing to do with Rachel. They're not, take this Rachel, look at this Rachel. These only have to do with Leah's relationship to God. Then after the Mandrake incident, it is Leah, not Rachel, who conceives. Now she bears two more sons and a daughter, Issachar. God has given me my hire, or God has rewarded me. God has blessed me. Zebulun, God has endowed me with a good endowment. And then Dinah, God has been right in his judgment, or God has been good. 
Though Leah is the disadvantage, she turned her attention to God. You see, disadvantages, when given to God, can become advantages because we realize, one, that this world has nothing to offer us, that we will not find our value in this world. I don't think there's anything better than that. I think that happened to me sometime in my 50s. This is my 60th year. And in my 50s, it was like, wow, my daughters get all the attention now. You know, people rush to bag their groceries. And they're like, you can do it yourself. I hope you brought your own bags. But it has a way of turning our attention heavenward to the one who will be our guide even into our old age, who loves us just as much as he loved us when we, are, when we were young and vibrant, that we are more important than sparrows, Matthew 10, 29 through 31, that we, no matter what our age, no matter what we look like, no matter what our physical shape, that we have all been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, the greatest, most valuable commodity of all time, all place, all people, and in the entire world was shed for each of us. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. Leah's value came from God's attention to her and on her. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, the Lord, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight. The Lord said, here's your value. It's not in wealth. It's not in wisdom. It's in understanding and knowing me. And this is what gives us value. When we understand and know that the Lord exercises loving kindness, good judgment, and righteousness in the earth, this is what Leah proposed aggressively came to know about God. God saw that Leah was unloved. God opened Leah's womb and made her fruitful. From these names, we see the progressive revelation about God that Leah received. God saw her affliction, knew her emotional turmoil. God heard her. God was with her. She learned to praise God, to find her contentment in God. God gave her strength. God brought her happiness. God rewarded her. God blessed her. God was good to her. What she was saying with these names is God cares about me. You see, God doesn't use the criteria of culture. We learned that last week when God did not take the culture of the Canaanites to honor the firstborn, the first out of the womb, or honor the hunter, the stronger one, the one who got for himself. God's criteria is not the culture of men, 
It's not the criteria of this world. God blesses those who seek him in their disadvantages. Isn't it often our very disadvantages that brought us to Jesus? I know that for me, even though I was raised in a Christian home, it wasn't until my first year of college when everything went wrong for me. Everything went wrong for me. And I realized that my ways and my thinking was just making my life a muck, terrible. That I came to the Lord and said, Lord, I need you. I don't like myself. I don't like what I've done with my life so far. I need you. I need you. Okay, I give up on my way. I'll do whatever you want. I'll do it your way because this is terrible. I came because of the disadvantages to Jesus. It drove me to Jesus. The plight of these two sisters mirrored the struggle between Laban and Jacob. Laban has all the advantages. Jacob is in Laban's hometown. Laban owns the livestock and can set the conditions. Jacob has nothing but wives and children. Jacob is dependent on the wages that Laban gives him. But yet, Jacob with the disadvantages has the greatest advantage of all because he has a gracious God who is for him and has vowed to bless him. At the end of these chapters, we realize that physical, material, social, financial, and whatever other advantages the world has to offer can still leave a person barren and discontent. What is barrenness? It's that nine emptiness that somehow, no matter what I've done, no matter what I have, I'm still not happy. I remember meeting a, a woman, running into a woman I knew who had two adorable daughters and a son and a husband that absolutely adored her who was um, very wealthy. And I, I met her at the mall and she's with a different man. And I said to her, hey, what's going on? Because they were a little cozy. And she said, oh, I'm just in a search for myself. I just have to find myself because I'm just not happy. And I said, and you think you're going to find it with, I don't know your name, what's your name? <laughs> Todd? And I said, no offense, Todd. But you think Todd, no, he's just one of, of several men that I've been dating. I just need to stop this nine. And I looked at her and I said, this is not the way. I said, I know the way and it's only God. God puts, uh, you know, I did the whole thing. There's a emptiness in your soul and it's God shaped. And only when you seek the Lord will that nine barrenness and discontent be filled. And she said, oh, thank you very much. True contentment, purpose, and fruitfulness come from one awareness of who God is. It starts there. He's, he's loving kindness. He's compassion. He's righteousness. He's a good judge. But also from God's personal compassion and concern for you, unless it becomes personal, you won't feel that fruitfulness, that contentment. 
And finally, it's not till you're attached to God, not anything of this world, not Jacob's or the Jacob's of life. No attachment to them will take away the barrenness. It's the attachment to God, the relationship to God. God, the God who is loving kindness, the God who gave his son for you to bring you into blessing, the God who cares for you. Perhaps you feel disadvantaged. Uh, Perhaps you can say, Cheryl, if we're going to start talking insecurities and disadvantages, do you have three hours? And the answer is no, but God does. God has all the time you need. Take heart because God is drawn to you right now. God is attracted to the neediest person in this room. Whoever's got the most disadvantages wins right now. That's the person right now that God is the most attracted to. In Capernaum, when they wanted to entrap Jesus, they brought the neediest man into the middle of the synagogue a man with a withered hand, and they put him in the center of the room where Jesus could not miss. They knew something about Jesus that we often forget. They knew that Jesus could not resist need. They knew that even though it was the Sabbath, and even though they were disapproving, and even though it could bring their ire and condemnation, And it would look to them like Jesus was breaking the law. They knew that Jesus could not resist need. That he would heal this man with a withered hand. That he would not allow that man to come into his presence and leave in the same condition. We're told in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus looked around and he was angry at those men because of the hardness of their heart, that they did not have any compassion for this man or his need. And then Jesus said, which of you that had an animal that fell into a pit wouldn't go and save that animal? And yet you have no compassion for this man, the son of Abraham. Then Jesus looked at this man and said, stretch out that hand. And the man stretched it out and it was whole just like the other one. Jesus is attracted to disadvantage and to need. If you have ever felt barren, and that barrenness takes many forms, something is missing from your life, others have something that you don't. Maybe, you know, a husband that actually brings coffee on time as a Valentine's present. Uh, Somebody was telling me the story, actually Glinda was telling me today that she saw um, an interchange between my mother and father where my, or she heard about her and my mother told her where she said, my mom said, where's my Valentine? And my dad said, I don't know, did you send it? (laughs) In other words, he thought she was saying, where's the Valentine I sent you? Take your eyes off of others. Take your eyes off of others. Don't compare yourself with others. The Bible says they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. 
Don't compare. Don't compare. Don't blame. Don't blame. Don't blame others for your barrenness. Don't say, well, it's this person or that person. If they had done this or if they had done that. Don't look for substitutions or, or ways to make yourself fruitful. Don't look to folklore or remedies or the methodologies of this world. Don't look to riches or your rights, but seek the Lord. Seek the Lord because barrenness is something only God can remedy. Barrenness is something only God can change. But knowing God makes all the difference in our life between contentment or discontentment, between sorrow or joy, between barrenness or fruitfulness. It's God. It's God. God is for you. And if you seek God, he will bring fruitfulness to your life because this is what he does. He said in John 15, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. If you abide, that, that's, that's the remedy for barrenness is abiding in Jesus. You see, the object is not Jacob. The object is not Leah. The objective is not to have as many children or even fruit for that matter. Our objective is abiding and our object is Jesus. And when we abide in Jesus, it doesn't matter what disadvantages you have. It doesn't matter because Jesus is the one who will bring fruit to your life. In fact, in the Bible, it says, and the barren has become the mother of many children. Because of Jesus, Jesus, abide in Jesus. And not you might bear fruit, but you will bear fruit. Let's pray. Lord, I just sense that there are women that would say, Cheryl, I've been looking at all my disadvantages. Lord, I just think about that thing that I read, that when women look in the mirror, they see all the disadvantages and not the advantages. They see 10% of what they don't have rather than the 90% that they do. Lord, I'm among my sisters. I know my sisters. I know our insecurities. I know that feeling of not being enough, not measuring up because of our age, because of our gender, because of our, our fathers or our background or our heritage or our financial state or our lack of beauty or lack of personality. Lord, you know. You know those things that have held these, your daughters, back. 
Lord, you know all the reasons they think they shouldn't have fruit, but that's nothing to you. That's nothing to you. This morning where our eyes are closed, if you'd say, Cheryl, I felt that. I felt that disadvantage. I, I, I felt that gnawing barrenness. Would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you? Oh, sisters, sisters. Lord, I pray for my sisters right now. Lord, these beautiful, precious women to you that you love so much. Lord, you know, you know, but you are the God who sees. Hallelujah. You are the God who hears. Another hallelujah. You are the God who knows. You know, God, the emotional turmoil. You know the atmosphere. You know it all, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would make the barren fruitful. Lord, that you would be, Lord, that you would make this the most fruitful woman ever. Lord, that you, Lord, that you would be the one we abide in, that you would be our object and our objective, that we would turn our eyes off the worthless remedies of this world. And we would make our concentration, that we would make our objective, our goal, our pursuit, to abide in you. Lord, that our eyes would be riveted to you, that we would look to you. Lord, take our eyes off of Jacob again. Lord, take our eyes off of Leah's. Take our eyes off of everything and put them on you. Lord, take our eyes off the mirror and put them on you. We ask these things, Lord, as your daughters, as daughters of the high king, the great God, the loving, kind God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.